This November, my father turns 90. In October, I turn 70. I've been thinking a lot about mortality and family and how our lives play out amid the history of our time. War and threat of war seems to have been a personal constant in my life. A grandfather, my father and two stepfathers, my stepbrother and my then husband have been in wars from World War I, World War II, and Korea to Vietnam. They were the lucky ones who came back whole and relatively sane. We only caught glimpses of their demons, nightmares, divorces, drinking. On this 66th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe by the Allied forces that led to the defeat of Hitler, I'd like to tell you about my three fathers who fought in World War II. My father, Jimmy Gray, and my mother, Colleen, who couldn't be here this morning because she's kind of ill. So my father and my mother were teenagers, 19 and 17, when they ran away to West Texas to marry. He was working as an oil field roughneck, which is hard work, but good pay for late depression times. Thank goodness mother insisted they come back to Norman, Oklahoma for me to be born. Otherwise, I'd have been a Texan. Eh. They were divorced when I was a baby, and then came Pearl Harbor, and Jimmy was off to war in the Pacific for the duration. He flew the hump with the Army Air Corps. He was an engineer on B-24s, ferrying supplies, especially gasoline, um, over the Himalayas to bases in China from which B-29s carried out bombing raids on Japanese-held territory and eventually Japan itself. At his base at Tezpur, near the Bamaputra River, by day they shooed sacred cows off the runway, and by night they were sure to take flashlights to the latrine in case of jackals or tigers. Their crash truck was an elephant. In China, in that area of China, there was no heavy equipment for building runways. The Chinese built them by hand, stone by stone, carried in baskets, hanging from poles, balanced on their shoulders. At one of the bases, Americans had added their own touch. Spelled out in stone at either end of the runway was the welcome message, Congrats, you made it again, which many did not. And one day, Jimmy's plane didn't make it. Engine failure. The crew bailed out, and Jimmy was the only survivor. He walked back across China for a long time, exhausted and starving until he got to a U.S. base, 
He says he wouldn't have made it except for Buddhist monks who helped along the way. When he got back to his home base, he found that, thinking he was dead, his buddies had taken his stash of poker winnings and drunk all his booze. He's still ticked off about that. When he came back, he went to the University of Oklahoma on the GI Bill, and he made a life in the oil field supply business where he was known as Hacksaw which might give you a hint as to how irascible a person he is. Hacksaw. He lived overseas most of his life, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines. I never lived with him, but I did live with his parents from kindergarten to junior high, so in some ways he feels more like an older brother than a father. He lives in Veneta, Oklahoma, northeast of Tulsa, with his fourth wife, Maria, who is Filipina. And they just celebrated their 22nd anniversary. You got me beat, I said. My marriage only lasted 20 years. My first stepfather was Cecil Rhodes, a tall, strapping, wholesome man who grew up on a farm outside Fairfax, Oklahoma, with no running water, just a pump and an outhouse. He served in the Army Infantry in Europe during World War II, including the Battle of the Bulge at the Siege of Bastogne, Belgium, which is famous for General McAuliffe's one-word answer to the Germans' call for surrender. Nuts. When Mother married Cecil in 1949, she was working as a doctor's assistant in Fairfax, and he was an Osage County deputy sheriff and a sergeant in the National Guard. I never lived with him either, except for a part of two summers. I was, I was fond of him, but the marriage wasn't destined to last. It just wasn't a good match. They were heading for divorce when he got called up with the 45th Division and sent to Korea by way of Camp Polk, Louisiana. It was Camp Polk at the time. He was wounded and recuperated in Japan. When he came back... He and mother divorced, and we lost track of him. A couple of years ago, after I had moved here to take care of mother, she was, we were reminiscing one day, and she wondered what had happened to Cecil. So um, I looked online to see if there were any roads still in Fairfax and, and called, and um, I said, I'm Colleen's daughter. And they said, oh, yeah, we remember Colleen. Oh, I'm sure they do. But we found out that Cecil had died 15 years ago at 75 of a heart attack, just walking along the street. I always picture Cecil in his army khakis. So Mother was still at Camp Polk working as a dental assistant when she met Colonel Ralph Talbot III. Colonel Ralph Talbot III, who would be the love of her life and my daddy. They were married in 1953, and he was sent to Camp Stoneman in the Bay Area of California, which is an egress point uh, for troops uh, headed for Korea. I went to live with him the summer I turned 13, along with my stepbrother, Ralph Talbot IV. Daddy Ralph was fourth-generation West Point, what they used to call a ring knocker. 
His father was a retired general who, as a young horse cavalry lieutenant, served with Pershing, chasing Pancho Villa around the southwest, and married the fort commander's daughter just like something out of a John Wayne movie. Ralph, my, my dad, was armored cavalry and served with Patton in World War II. Patton's Third Army relieved the siege of Bastogne, where Cecil was, how paths cross, even unbeknownst. They also liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp. Ralph had pictures. He showed them to me. He studied Spanish at the Army Language School in Monterey, California, and then we were sent to Uruguay, where he was an advisor to the Uruguayan Army. We were in Montevideo for four years, and I graduated from a bilingual high school there. Then we were stationed at the Presidio of San Francisco, which now has a peace university. It's been turned into a park. My bedroom had a view from the Golden Gate to Alcatraz. Tough duty, but someone had to do it. Daddy Ralph died at 52 at the Presidio during open-heart surgery the day before his 30-year retirement. The the doctor was devastated. He said the operation was a success, but they just couldn't get him off the heart-lung machine. They just couldn't get him to breathe on his own. I believe... He couldn't imagine himself no longer on active duty and simply refused to live as anything but the warrior he had been all his life. He's buried at the Presidio National Cemetery with a beautiful view of the Golden Gate Bridge. All is well, safely rest, Neath the calm Mother Earth's waiting breast, duty done like the sun going west. So I am the daughter of warriors. Well, one warrior and two citizen soldiers who fought the good fight, a war to keep us free, a just war. World War II was an all-out endeavor from the front lines to the factories where Mother was a Rosie the Riveter at McDonnell Douglas Aircraft to the labs where they built interesting new inventions to the backyard victory gardens, the scrap drives, the ration cards, and the query, is this trip really necessary? It was about saving gasoline and tires. Along with unprecedented destruction and death and the bomb, World War II left a legacy of unprecedented cooperation and sacrifice. It made it hard for those shaped by this legacy to recognize how different a war Vietnam was, which was 
my adult generation's war. The day I came home from the hospital with our daughter, my husband Bill got his orders for Vietnam. He was in Saigon when my stepbrother came home from the first of his two tours there. This was the fall of 1967. I was railing against the war, which at that time had claimed more than 35,000 U.S. and untold numbers of Vietnamese lives. Ralph, a warrior like his father, said we had to keep fighting, had to win, or the dead would have died in vain. I said, don't you realize this is an ill-conceived war? We can't win. And however many more die, they will have died in vain. What would you do, he asked, if Bill were killed? Well, I'm not in the streets protesting because I'm a career officer's wife. But if I were his widow, I would raise all holy hell till we got out of there. I didn't raise all holy hell until somewhat later. I did join another mother for peace. You know, they're the ones with the flower logo that says, War is not healthy for children and other living things. Bill came home, resigned his commission, and we moved to Little Rock. After 30 years of active duty, Ralph, my, my stepbrother Ralph retired, and he claims that the shaking in his hands, which keeps him from the competitive pistol matches he loves, has nothing to do with his exposure to Agent Orange. In Little Rock, there was a UU church and a surprisingly hardy band of liberals in and beyond the church committed to peace, civil rights, women's rights, the environment, and I jumped right in. Over the years, many of us saw more clearly the connections between these issues and movements. The the connecting thread of of justice and, and, and peacemaking at a cultural level. We learned how bridges of understanding must be built one stone at a time how justice must be won step by agonizingly slow step, and how peace must be waged with the intensity of effort previously only spent on war, and that waging peace within oneself is a crucial step. My activism was fueled by outrage. You know, if you're not outraged, you aren't paying attention. It was fueled by outrage, which energized me until it burned me out. At a women's conference, someone who had just met me remarked that I seemed very angry. Angry, I said defensively. Me? Angry? 
It took a long time, some therapy, and much spiritual deepening to grok that peace is not only the goal, but the way. Okay, I grok it. I'm still working on it, however. It took me a long time to take off my internal armor and open my heart as wide as my you-you mind. To open my heart to my own imperfect self, as well as this imperfect, oh, all too imperfect world we have made. To embrace hope rather than despair. To know that anything worth doing takes more than one lifetime to do it. And to have faith that the arc of history bends toward justice. How old is the longing for peace? How long is the history of war? Only 3,000 years ago, the prophet Micah foresaw a time when they shall into plowshares beat their swords. They shall study War no more than everyone neath their vine and fig tree shall live in peace and unafraid. Barack Obama touched on this in his Nobel Peace Prize speech. If you have not read it, I commend it to you. I could have just read the whole thing to you in lieu of the sermon, but I'll just quote a few passages. Obama says... He says, I come here with an acute sense of the cost of armed conflict, filled with difficult questions about the relationship between war and peace and our effort to replace one with the other. I do not bring with me today a definitive solution to the problems of war. What I do know is that meeting these challenges will require the same vision, hard work, and persistence of those men and women who acted so boldly decades ago. He's he's referring to World War II. And it will require us to think in new ways about the notions of just war and the imperatives of a just peace. He continues, I stand here as a direct consequence of Dr. King's life work. I am living testimony to the moral force of nonviolence, I know there is nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King, but make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. To say that force is sometimes necessary is not a call to cynicism. It is a recognition of history the imperfections of human beings, and the limits of reason. He continues, Peace is not merely the absence of visible conflict. Only a just peace based upon the inherent rights and dignity of every individual can truly be lasting. 
Obama concludes, I do not believe that we will have the will or the staying power to complete this work without something more, and that is the continued expansion of our moral imagination and insistence that there is something irreducible that we all share. We do not have to live in an idealized world, he says, to still reach for those ideals that will make it a better place. As Dr. King says, I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. So let us reach for the world that ought to be, says Obama. That spark of the divine that still stirs within each of our souls, we can understand that there will be war and still strive for peace. That must be our work here on earth. Close quotes. There are glimmers, only glimmers, but glimmers still. Francis Wilkinson, editorializing in The Week news magazine, says, War is surely brutal in Iraq and Afghanistan today, as it was in Europe and Indochina in the 20th century. But the tone and the terms of engagement seem altogether different. The counterinsurgency approach championed by General David Petraeus emphasizes patience. God give me patience and make it snappy. Patience, negotiation, and the slow, steady accumulation of civic and political capital. It relies on a language of construction, not destruction, of cooperation rather than subjugation. And what Wilkinson didn't say, but I say is, and it takes a bloody long time. Nation building is not easy. Look how long and raggedy has been our own journey, still ongoing. Will we see more glimmers of waging peace? Inshallah, God willing, inshallah. Inshallah.